This is Joshua Bell with the Kilt and the Cloth uh, with our uh, Tuesday morning Bible study, picking up at Exodus 30, but we have a couple questions. So the, the first one, and I don't want to minimize this, but the, the first question was, well, we, last week, everything was discussed and they mentioned anointing of oil and we just kind of blew right over that and uh-huh. instantly got into things that we're probably not as comfortable with. Yeah. And that's, or as knowledgeable with, which is the, the clothing and the, the blood and the way you prepare the animals. Right. Which is foreign to us, but it's, we just blew past that. So about the, about the anointing yeah, the oil thing. And, and oil. Yeah. It's, so, so for them, like you said, part of the, part of the problem with this is, is that we're writing it backwards. We're already currently doing these things. The, the writers are. They're already currently doing these things, and they're going backwards. And so they're trying to, like you said, in the discussion we were having, it, it goes really fast. Like all, all of a sudden, boom, we don't do any of these things. And then all of a sudden, boom, we all have uniforms, and we have specific animals and specific things. Oil, uh, specifically, um, how do I say this? The only reason we we blew past it in our discussion was is that they have not consecrated oil. They're just talking about the blood sacrifice at this point. So they haven't talked about why oil is so important to them in the in the book of Exodus. Oh, well, yeah, in the book of Exodus. They haven't talked about oil yet. Um, and so so for them, there's this visceral connection to the the sacrifice that's really really important but they haven't talked about why oil is important yet and so it's it's kind of backwards i would argue that in some cases that anointing oil in some ways might have been like our lord's prayer it's something that we do all the time and we think about it but it's not really at the forefront of our minds, right? Like it's, yeah. we're in worship, we say, and now let's pray the prayer that our, that Jesus taught us. And we start our father. Anointing oil is in kind of that category for them. It, it, but it's not, like it, it means a whole lot to them, but uh, but it's not, it, it's just something that they've forgotten as the writing. Now, once you get in, into Leviticus and Deuteronomy, there's a little bit of a discussion about oil, but again, nothing specific that says this is why oil is so important and the weirdest part was for us as christians you know some of the problems that we struggle with is is the crossover right like what's what do we do that's jewish and what is it that we don't do that's jewish right so anointing oil is is a problem for us um jesus doesn't talk about anointing oil if you ever look at any of his ministry stuff there's no oil in any of his stuff. He spits in someone's face, right? Like there's a, a visceral thing there to heal them. Um, he he touches people. Uh, he he rub mud on people's face. He but there, there's never been an anointing of oil conversation. But then Paul comes along uh, when you're reading the New Testament, and and Paul uses oil like three or four times in his language. And is this olive oil? Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. This okay. is definitely olive oil. It's nothing, nothing crazy. It's it's just whatever was available. 
but oil to them, olive oil to them was a life-giving substance also. And light. And light. That's right. So it, it, it brings multiple meanings. So for them, the quick answer, which is not quick, but it is in some senses, <laughs> that they just not talked about oil yet, and they never really discuss it completely. Um, we still use oil today, though. Oh, yes, sir. I mean, oh, yeah, it's something we did mention. We brought over. Yeah, no, we, we it's a crossover. It, we, we don't exactly know what to do with it. Uh, the Methodists, for example, they, they use oil. So, like, let's say uh, my friends go that are ministers, they go to visit somebody in the hospital, they'll anoint them with oil. That's part of their tradition. The Episcopals do this, uh, Catholics do this. Hmm? Pentecostals. Pentecostals, apps, they love, they use oil like everything. Not, 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 and, I, and I don't mean this in a bad way. Please understand this is just a liturgical lens that we're looking at it as we, the, the, the Christians use this oil, but we don't exactly know the origin of it, other than just Paul says to anoint them with oil. Um, the second question you asked was, was when, did, when did it go from burnt offerings to, uh, like you said, the coin, chart, credit card, and uh, cash, you know, moment. Uh, we don't know. I, I mean, I'm just being totally honest with you. There's a shift when you look at things through the anthropological lens that starts to show cultures that are established, right? Like, and it usually starts off with uh, their communal practices. Like, okay, how do they worship? How do they do these things? How do they eat? Like that's a big deal for some you, people have done their whole PhD dissertations on how cultures eat. Then as things progress, you start to see through the lens, how do they trade with others? And so currency becomes a thing. Well, the problem with reading Torah is, is that they're not looking at the burnt offering as currency. They're just looking at it as stuff that's available. However, it's currency, no matter how you flip it. Well, they're, they're buying the animals in the courtyard. Yeah, that's right. Somewhere the ark gets covered in gold, so they acknowledge that gold is... is the most precious yeah. resource on I the mean, planet. It's whatever word you want to use, it's, it's good. And my brain just went, just following what you said, okay. You know, they're wandering out in the countryside. They got animals everywhere. And now they're living in cities and they have to work. Like y'all said last week, the pigeons are disappearing. The doves are disappearing. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. And because uh, they're doing so many offerings. So sooner or later, it's going to just change over. Plus, yeah, it's probably getting hard to dispose of all those doves. It is. I mean, it is. It's, it, I mean, logistically, none of this really makes a lot of sense like when you, when you start putting it together like it's how is how is this supposed to work like that's that's a whole lot of animals and that's a whole lot of carcasses like i mean y'all put that together you all seen what farmers do and then you think about there's what is it seventy thousand people at this point and then they're trying to figure out how to kill all these lambs and then get disposed of it this it, it's the, the idea makes sense. Um, it just, it's not logis logistically feasible for the mass. Well, they, I mean, they go into great lengths telling us how it got started. Yeah. They don't necessarily acknowledge how we changed that. Right. I guess is what yeah. I'm, I'm trying to say. Yeah, they, you know, it, it, it evolves 
I guess is the word. It is. Oh, we can't use that. That's Darwin talk. But anyway. No, it's, I see it as, you know, okay, I can take <clears throat> my sheep that are not cooperating to the temple, or I can take money. It's kind of like we do now. Money is easier to give than time. Right. So it's easier to, you know, put your shekel in a pouch and off we go and leave the lamb at home. <laughs> yeah. No, for real. Like, it, well, and, and, and part of the problem, I'm trying to be very careful how I answer this question, is this, the idea of currency net was always fluid. I mean, it was always about who was in power, right? So some people might use some sort of paper product. Some might use a little piece of metal. Some even used rocks and stuff, you know? Like, so, so part of the problem, the currency issue is for them, and I feel safe saying this, the idea was to give something of value to God. Um, the tenth, by the way, does not come until much, much later. Notice the language in the, the Torah so far. It's all about the first fruits. There hasn't been a tenth described. It's always about giving the, the best of your, your first part of your, your harvest. Um, the tenth is something that they create later because, it, they, because they're like us. Well, how much are we supposed to give of our first fruits? And then, and then they're like, well, uh, a tenth, you know, a tenth of what you have is because God has given you everything else and God would want you to survive. His chicken's not nearly as big as my cow is. That's right. I so mean, the a tenth of you, yours is going to be different from a tenth of theirs. And so, uh, so it becomes a logistic thing. But so far, they haven't even mentioned that, right? Like, so it's, it's the, the goal has been so far just to create the ritual to create the, the conversation and honestly to create this, and this is the part that's hard for us, is these are acts of worship. Like this is not a, this is not like something like a daily occurrence. This is a daily worship ritual. Like you're, you're supposed to do this. Um, and that's, that's also hard for us to process because for us, we, We've turned all of our focus in towards Sabbath, not as a daily uh, practice. And so what we use as Christians typically say is, is that uh, when we give our stuff, uh, we, we give it in an orderly fashion. I hate to be that guy, but I mean, that's really it. I mean, we take up offerings or we, we have processes and procedures for people to get to make it easier Right, because this is hard. This doesn't make you wouldn't like us bringing our chickens. I would not like you bringing your chickens. Uh, but maybe, maybe first two days. I hate chickens. Have you all heard that before? I hate chickens. Do not love to eat them. Love to cook them. I hate chickens. Um, so no, please keep your chickens to yourself. Uh, nothing good comes from that. So uh, did that help answer your questions? Yes. Okay. I just. No, these are good questions. That's why I wanted to get it on the recording. Look, we're going to get right into anointing oil. We're going to get into anointing oil. <laughs> Sorry. Like no, you did good. That's why I said we had to record it. I got in trouble for eating the head earlier, so I tried That's, not to. You, you did? Okay. Well, we're at Exodus chapter 30 today. Uh, and so, again, part of the, for those of you that are listening, one of the things that's important to recognize is that we're establishing, not we, they are establishing how 
they're going to do these things. And so they've got to create logistics. So you shall make an altar for burning incense. Make it of acacia wood. It shall be a cubit long and a cubit wide. It shall be square and two cubits high. It's horns of one piece with it. Uh, overlay it with pure gold. There it is again. It's, it's tops, it's side round about and it's horns and make a gold molding for it round about. And make two gold rings for it under its molding and make them on its two side walls on opposite sides. And they shall serve as holders for poles, which with to carry it. Make the poles of acacia wood and guess what? Overlay them with gold. Place it in front of the curtain that is over the Ark of the Covenant. Mine says pack. Uh, in front of the cover that is over the covenant where I will meet with you. On it, Aaron shall burn aromatic incense and he shall burn it every morning when he tends the lamps. And Aaron shall burn it in the twilight when he lights the lamps, a regular incense offering before the Lord throughout the ages. You shall not offer alien incense on it or a burnt offering or a meal offering. Neither shall you pour a libation on it. Once a year, Aaron shall perform a purification upon its horns with blood of the sin offering, the offering of purification. Purification shall be performed upon it once a year throughout the ages. It is most holy to the Lord. Okay, so I want to pause real quick. I've always found this fascinating that, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this at the moment, but historically, uh, it's fascinating to recognize that throughout the history of God, that God is tied to fragrance. Um, in, in specific types of fragrance. Um, jasmine, for one, uh, a, lot of, a lot of cultures, because jasmine grows extremely wild out there. Uh, jasmine is uh, always attached to the fragrance of God, like that God stepped foot on that place and jasmine stepped forth from his footsteps, you know, that type of thing. Um, and this is artistic, by the way, this is not theological. It's just something to point out. Um, jasmine irises, which you don't really smell, but, but lilies, the smell of lilies is always attached to God. Uh, we, we always ask, well, why do we use lilies at the resurrection of Christ? There's this old legend from one of our early church fathers that, um, suffered from, well, it wouldn't suffer. He, he, the, the legend is he had stigmata. Have you ever heard stigmata? Stigmata was an ancient term. Did you hear it growing up? Okay. And the, 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 the Catholics would have used that somebody was so in the presence of Jesus Christ, our savior, that they literally uh, would, the wounds from Jesus's crucifixion would appear upon their body like holes in their wrists, holes in their feet, they, and it could not stop bleeding. And from the wounds, one would smell the fragrance of lilies because it just represented the time of Jesus's resurrection. It just so coincides that they bloom at that certain time of the year. One of such people that we know had stigmata or the, the, the legend of stigmata was St. Francis, St. Francis of Assisi. He's the one that we always talk about. We quote him all the time. He's, he's the one that 
feeds the animals and takes care of the people had stigmata. That's the, the legend of him was that he had stigmata. And you could smell the fragrance of God coming from the wounds. So I just have to point this out because it's a fascinating thing that churches have created in Big C now about the presence of God. We do this also with trauma. Um, like we've lost a family member that really meant a lot to us that might've smoked a specific type of pipe tobacco. And you walk around inside the grocery store and somebody obviously smell, smokes the same thing. You walk past them and instantly are flooded with memories of this person, right? So we, we do this scientifically as well. But uh, here you have proof that even in this place, they recognize that to, to be in the presence of God, one must smell the presence of God. I, I, if I was going to make a huge case about this someday, like if I was doing a PhD in the future, I would want to write a whole dissertation about the fragrance of God. Um, Cause it's fascinating to me here. The Hebrew culture is not just creating an altar, but they're creating an altar specifically for incense. And then it tells you to, you know, to be careful. You don't want to put stuff in an incense altar because it, it pollutes the smell. You wipe it out, you get it all out of the way so that when you put the next incense in, you smell that. I know it sounds really weird, but this is a logistic thing. So I've always found this passage of scripture fascinating. They don't need to beat, beat a dead horse on this one, but at, at the same point, there is, there is a direct correlation, I believe, and someday maybe I'll write about it, but I think there's a direct correlation historically that people connect to God through the sense of fragrance. Um, and here's part of your proof. So I think fragrance triggers memories more than big time anything else absolutely more than any of the other senses you know I, I can't touch this book and but like you said a fragrance so aren't they supposed to smell good i went to a catholic funeral for my brother-in-law's father and it was just about ran out by the fragrance yeah, no. i mean it, it attacked my sinuses I almost couldn't stay I, in there I had a priest because I was fascinated by this because I was asking about the, the the thing that they put the incense in at a Catholic church is called a censer and I was like I wanted to know uh where that came from and so the, the priest that I was asking was really deep into liturgical stuff like me and so uh he says well we, we've done this for you know almost a millennia now and he said he said when he was in seminary, one of his seminary professors said that if the smell wasn't strong enough to make your eyes water, you were not bringing God into the place. <laughs> well, they and, had my eyes water. Yes, I, 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 I'm, and I'm super allergic to this stuff. So he would always laugh, but not really, because like he'd asked me to come and do a eulogy or participate in a service from somebody in Kingman. And, and uh, I would walk in there and I would have to wait till the sensor had gone by so that I wouldn't have an asthma attack right there in the middle of the, the chapel. So, uh, so yeah, it triggers memories. Um, there's, I, I mean, historically there's a direct correlation to specific fragrances. It doesn't say that here, uh, 
Um, you're going to hear more of that throughout the Hebrew Bible, um, but that scent of lilies, jasmine, uh, sometimes lavender. Uh, there's another one that um, there's there's a specific well there's specific scents that the Catholic Church uses throughout the year for specific things. So it's not like there's not like one little block of incense that you get to burn all the time. There's one that they use quite a bit, but there's a specific one for this and a specific one for that. I mean, it's telling you there's some something to this, but even here in the Hebrew Bible, we've had that conversation. Wasn't then, and I don't remember which one, well, it's either frankincense or myrrh, isn't one yeah, of those? Yeah, so uh, a myrrh, uh, it's frankincense becomes the the perfume type of stuff, and that's typically used as an incense type of thing. Um, and it's super sweet. Um, Is it the embalming or the? There's one I thought they used. I think it's myrrh. I did too. I think I think it's myrrh is the one that they used at the uh, at the funerals, and frankincense is the incense. And the only reason I know frankincense is because uh, you find it everywhere. Like it, when you when you when I go buy stuff like. Uh, if I'm going to buy something stinky for a worship service, right? Uh, I think I had, well, we, we did this. We did this for Lent a couple of years ago. We did that when you came in to the prayer labyrinth. We were burning, it was frankincense, wasn't it? I think it was. And I think the only reason I know the frankincense is because it's the most readily available incense that you can buy. So, and on a side note, every culture has incense in their ritual in some way or another uh, of their gods, not just our God, right? But all of their neighboring tribes also did this too. There was always fire involved and always some sort of fragrant stuff going on. Okay. What one just other 30 where we stopped at starting 30, stopping at verse 11. Yeah. 11. Uh, Moses is talking. Right. Now we're going to get told what Moses said. That's well. And, and then the Lord is going to speak to Moses. Uh, so it, so it was God speaking from verse 30 to okay. verse one through 10. And now the Lord's speaking to Moses again, saying, this is what you're supposed to do. Well, the parenthesis marks dropped is the quotation marks. It, it, right. So I was just trying to catch up with who was talking to me. I get confused. Uh, yeah, I think it's God speaking at the beginning, and then the Lord speaks to Moses again, saying, this is when you take a census. Yeah, so verse 11. When the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, when you take a census of the Israelite people, according to their enrollment, each shall pay the Lord a ransom for himself. What did, what did your other translations have? This is ransom. 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 Okay, interesting. Being enrolled, that no plague may come upon them through, being, through their being enrolled. Um, that is what everyone who is entered into the record shall pay. A half shekel by the sanctuary weight, 20 geras to the shekel. A half shekel is an offering to the Lord, there's your currency. Everyone who is entered into the records from the age of 20 years up shall give the Lord's offering. The rich shall not pay more, and the poor shall not pay less than a half a shekel when giving the Lord's offering as expiation it should say for the forgiveness of sins or something. 
What is your state? Expiation? Atonement. Atonement. That'll work. Mm -hmm. I like atonement. Expiation is a fancy word for atonement. Yeah, we'll do that. You shall take the atonement money or expiation money from the Israelites and assign it to the service of the tent of meeting. It shall serve as the Israelites as a reminder before the Lord as atonement for your persons or for the forgiveness of you or something to that nature. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. um, interesting. That's not tithing, though. It's not tithing. Thank you for catching that. So, but there's there's money now, but it's not the same, right? Like this is a specific thing. And it, apparently shekel's not a lot of money. Right. Because it says the poor is going to give the same amount. That's right. Um I mean, there's not a whole lot to, to this. I mean, it's just a, it's just a it's really just to kind of, I'm trying to see if my commentary says anything that it's got to point out. And really, it's, it's not. I mean, the, the biggest thing that the commentaries are going to tell you is it depends on the time that we're talking about. If we think that this was written at a certain specific time historically, then this is why they're doing it. And your, your commentaries are going to struggle with this because we just don't really know why. We just know that here's this moment, here's this, they're discussing, and this is what they got to do. But they are introducing uh, census. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The census is a big deal. Take it to Jesus's time and take the government out of it. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're somewhere this should be happening in Jesus's time. I mean, yeah, somewhere they're they're getting put on the rolls. See, here's the thing. I, I have massive issues with the census at the time of Jesus. It didn't happen. It didn't happen. Roman, Romans didn't really do that. I mean, like this idea that they kept score of how many people they've accomplished. I mean, by the time that at the height, I think they were like seven, eight, eight million people at the, at the height of their empire, right? There's no way you could do that back then at that time because uh, people are having children faster than you can keep the census getting into Rome. So, um, why was making a big deal of this? Oh, but the Jewish culture did. We, we know that they kept track of lineage. That's extremely important. Um, I don't think we can prove that the, the, the lineage that the Jews kept at some point we have written documentation, but I don't think we could prove that any of it was fully accurate. I think the goal was just to show the family truths. Uh, all the way back to uh, to Abraham. Yeah, I was. I guess the only reason I mentioned that is we. My brain has always said, okay, they just got the wrong census, or I mean, when they write about mm -hmm. it, or they got the wrong Bethlehem, mm -hmm. and or they they had to have a reason for them to be there, and that's what they understood the reason to be. Right, they, they did have. Rome had a census, but it was like years after he should have been born. Mm -hmm. I mean, they. Oh yeah. I mean, they. There was one in there, but it doesn't mesh. Not at the time of Yeah, it doesn't mesh time wise. No. So you know, I don't. Anyway. Wanna, I'm going to rock your all's world because Robert just brought it up. <clears throat> Luke chapter two, right? In the time of 
Quirinius, there was a, oh, or is it Matthew? It, it was Matthew. Quirinius is this Roman governor that supposedly takes a census and that all of these people are supposed to travel back to their homeland in order to be counted, right? We know that in the New Testament. Historically, we don't know that that actually ever happened. The gospel writer puts it in there specifically to put Jesus's birth in the place of Bethel, or what we know as Bethlehem. It's got to be there. And he has to have been from Nazareth. So the gospel writer is putting that in there when he's talking specifically about the census is this, they would have recognized censuses as Jews because that's something that they would have kept track of. But the Romans themselves would have not told all of the Jews to go back to their homeland because they could care less. All they wanted to know is, is how many people live in this province that are going to pay taxes. Does that make sense? So the gospel writer is not doing anything wrong. He's, he's doing a practice of a formula of writing at the time. He puts Quirinius's name there to give you a timeline. That's it. The census, we, we have no record of that ever happening. Like archeologically, anthropologically, we just know that there was this guy and that the Jews definitely kept censuses. Here's your first example that we just read, right? Uh, and the purpose of that was honestly to keep track of everybody's family. You know, the, 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 the scary part about when you think about Jesus's time versus this is Rome had this innate ability to go into someone's house, kill everybody about it, and nobody could say or do anything about it whatsoever. Once they were dead, they were dead. What are you going to do? I mean, I don't mean to be awful about it, but how do you know that they died? I mean, I want you to think about this for just a second. Here you all are living in Perry. And the Roman Empire comes in and they go to your next door neighbor's house. They kill everybody in there, but you don't see them for like three months because you're too busy working all the time. There was only, the only way that they could keep track of each other was by doing these censuses, which was really who's coming to uh, synagogue, who's coming to temple this week together. Did you see cousin so-and-so? No, we haven't seen him. I haven't seen him forever. And then that's what they would find that there was now a Roman citizen living in their home. This is how graphic mm -hmm. that the New Testament is. I, I have not paid attention to that enough until this class that I'm in right now, but this is how graphic their life is. So when the writer of Luke or Matthew is saying, the emperor Quirinius says this, it's saying, look, it's his fault that there was this mass migration of people moving around for no reason whatsoever, except for, Rome was making us move. You see how powerful that language is? It changes everything. Here, this is much more genuine, much more gracious. We're doing this because we have beautiful things happening, not in the New Testament. It's the exact opposite. I don't mean to melt your brains yet, but you know we are in the season of Advent. It's kind of a big deal that we talk about that moment specifically in a Bible study, no less, that... Uh, that, that census was, was more of a, our lives are awful right now. We're being forced to move from our places. We're being told we have to do something. They're counting us up like cattle. I mean, that's, that's what the writer is saying there. Not, 
oh yeah, this is die. And we always read it that way too. Like it's so loving and, you know, just is why Jesus had to move to Bethlehem. And, and then let's not forget the part in the census story that after the census is taken and Jesus is born, what do they do? They run, they flee to Egypt. They're like, we got to get out of here. That language is super dark. It's not a happy story. But in any way, shape, or form, this part that we just got done reading is life is good for them today in the book of the Exodus. Um, the, the Jesus story, on the other hand, not, not happy, not, not good. Um, wow, I, I totally took a rabbit trail there. Sorry, gang. Not sorry. Yeah. Uh, well, it's kind of funny that we talk about Jesus coming as the Prince of Peace, but yet the chaos that he caused oh, yeah. his his parents and what they were going through, and then they yeah. <laughs> born in a manger with the animals, and then yeah. being having to flee to Egypt shortly after that. I mean, that's not really does it make you feel like peace? No, yeah. no, I I I I've always I mean. I think the problem that I'm having as I'm getting older is as I keep getting more pessimistic about that story. Like, I mean, even the language uh, we, we use that phrase Prince of Peace. That's a, that's a musical term that we've l learned over the years, right? Like it's something that we've said and it's easy for us to say that, but nothing about what Jesus had done was peaceful. I mean, it was full on uh, insurrection in uh, 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 every way you look at it, peaceful res insurrection, right? More like a Martin Luther King, like I'm going to sit at this booth until everybody gets fed in this room type of thing. But, um, and I didn't mean to put Jesus and Martin Luther King in the same category, but you, throughout history, you have these people that stand up on behalf of the others. But this, this guy, Jesus, he stands up for things that we, we don't even know yet. Like he's, he just knows that you are all creations of God, period. You all have breath. So he, including the Romans. So that's why he says you got to love your enemies. So this Prince of Peace idea, this, this Christmas moment, it's hard for us. Uh, and, and, I, and like I said, I keep getting more pessimistic about it the, the older I get that, uh, no, he, he was, he, he was a love, he, he was an okie. Uh, he told the truth out of love and maybe sometimes too bluntly. You know, uh, you should not be doing these things because God loves you and you're going to have consequences and repercussions. Uh, interestingly enough, so that I go back to the Exodus, because I do want to finish this chapter, is the interesting thing that's happening here is Everything that Jesus did was Jewish. Like, I, I mean, I, I hate to be that guy that sits there and goes, well, he's, he's creating something new. I, I think, honestly, the biggest part about what makes Jesus awesome was, as he said, look, this tradition brought me up to believe that God is real and that we have to do these things because not just God told us, but we figured it out over time that we, we have to take care of one another. Um, that's where I think the census is mentioned here. It's not a, it's not an aspect of just keeping track specifically, even though I just said that like seven minutes ago, it's also this idea of keeping track of your family. Think of it like a family reunion. 
How do we keep track of everybody? We get everybody together. And what's the first thing you all do? Catch up. Catch up. Before, before everybody gets to come, you, you have to create a, a list for invitations. And we go through the list, right? Is cousin so-and-so still alive? Is this person still alive? And, and then once you make that list, that guest list, you bring them to this place. It's supposed to be a homecoming. It's supposed to be exciting. We all know that once everybody gets in the room, it's not exactly exciting. And there's moments where it's a little bit more chaotic, but we're all there because our bloodline ties us to one another, whether we like it or not. <laughs> Usually, it could be exciting. It could be a certain way. Yeah, that's right. For some of us, we like to watch the chaos. You know, keeps you awake. Yes, it does. Well, and you tell stories. Do you remember that time? And yeah. so and so did. Yeah. You personally may not have been alive at that time, but you hear the stories of what happened. You know. Two generations ago, or whatever. That's exactly right. And so that's kind of, I mean, they're they're telling stories also. This is really it's kind of this is kind of a storybook. Yes. <laughs> and they tell stories, and they may not be in order. No. But um, like I've said a hundred times with you all before, you when you think of Exodus, even this, it's not as painful as reading the book of Numbers. But if you're re reading this, you you want to. <laughs> You want to think about it as, as they're all sitting around a campfire. And you've got a little kid that asks the questions. Hey, Grandma, Grandpa, wh why do we do this? And and why was it? Why was the the altar? Why is it covered in gold? Why 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 acacia wood? God, you know, Grandma, Grandpa, why why do we have to do it that way? Why blood? You know, uh, this this idea here is kind of beautiful. Um, and, and super inundated. Like it's just got all kinds of stuff. Like the next part that we, we read here in verses 17 through 21, now you've got another thing, but it's, it's a washing basin. Like, so let me just read that real quick. For example, it says, make a, a, a laver, laver of copper and a stand of copper for it. Notice it's not made out of gold, mm -hmm. copper. Mine uh, says bronze. Yours says bronze. Mm -hmm. That is definitely a Greek translation. Not nothing wrong with that, but bronze would have been a, a thing the Greeks knew about, but the Hebrew culture would have would have not yet. But they say they stand up a copper for washing in place it between the tent of meeting and the altar, put water in it, and let Aaron and his sons wash their hands and feet in, in water draw from it. Does this sound familiar? What does Jesus do at that last mm -hmm. supper? Yes, before they enter the tent of meeting, they shall wash with water. So before, and I again, I'm trying to be very careful to not say, here's why Jesus did this. But this is proof that Jesus was brought up this way. The, this is He's turning that upper room into someplace sacred. He washes their hands and feet. So here he washes. Uh, when they enter the tent of meeting, they shall wash with water. They may not die so that they may not die. Or when they approach the altar to serve and to turn into a smoke offering by fire of the Lord, they shall wash their hands and feet that they may not die. Okay. 
She, it shall be a law for all time for them, for him and his offspring throughout the ages. And then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, next take choice spices. Here it goes. 500 weight of solidified myrrh, half of much 250 of fragrant cinnamon. That's the one I could remember. And 250 aromatic cane. What does y'all say in verse 23? Calamus. Calamus. Okay. 23. The Lord tells us. says. 18 pounds of pure mirth, half as much as cinnamon and sweet cane. Sweet And then it goes into five weight of the cassia and, yeah. and a hint of olive oil. Yes. Yep. Yes. Okay. Oh, yeah. Uh, and all those matter. Um, and make of this a sacred anointing oil. There you go. A compound of ingredients expertly blended to serve as a sacred anointing oil. With it, anoint the tent of meeting, the Ark of the Covenant, the table of, and all of its utensils, the lampstand and its fitting, and the altar of innocence, the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils, and the labyrinth stand. Thus you shall consecrate them so that they, may, they must be holy. Whatever touches them shall be consecrated. You shall also anoint Aaron and his sons, consecrating them to serve me as priests. And speak to the Israelite people as follows. This shall be an anointing oil sacred to me throughout the ages. It must not be rubbed on any person's body. That's why I'm making a big deal of that. And you must not make anything like it in the same proportions. It is sacred to be held sacred by you. Whoever compounds it like it's like or puts any of it on a layman shall be cut off from his kin or from his family. And the Lord said to Moses, take the herb stock, the ankia and galbanum, which what does your say? Oh, same thing. Mm -hmm. These herbs uh, with together with pure frankincense, let there be equal part of each. Make them into an incense. Oh, thank goodness I wasn't crazy. It was frankincense. The compound expertly blended, refined, refined, pure and sacred. Beat some of it into powder and put some before the covenant in the uh, Ark of the Covenant in the tent of meeting. Where I will meet with you, it shall be made most holy to you. But when you make this incense, you must not make any in the same proportions for yourselves. It shall be held by you sacred to the Lord. And whoever makes any like of it to smell of it shall be cut off from his kin again, altogether. So I'm just going to pause right there as we finish chapter 30. But uh, so here's, here's where you get your, here's where the oil is important. This is how you're supposed to use it. Notice that it's changed throughout history, right? We, we put anointing oil on people, uh, why would, if you were to make, since you are all Bible scholars now, uh, at this yeah. point in your lives, what would you assess? Why, why would we today put anointing oil on human beings uh, versus back then? Just a, just a guess. It's a, just a discussion piece. Well, I know in the Catholic, when somebody's dying, it's extreme unction, they call it. When uh -huh. somebody's dying, they put oil on the forehead. That's right. So during the last rites, I guess. Sure, absolutely. It's definitely during the last rites. Uh, why? Why do they do that? So they'd be prepared to you know, meet God. Yeah. You know, okay. Yeah. I mean, they're these are priests that they're are the only ones that can get it. So my my brain goes, they're they're holy. It's a to you too much used word <laughs> but but i mean they're they're making them presentable the priests are presentable to god they're the only ones that are can approach god they're 
making mm -hmm. whoever's dying presentable to meet mm -hmm. God. Sure. But here, I'm being facetious here. Uh, but here it says that if you put it on someone's skin, that that person should be cut away from their entire family. It's about to happen. Yeah. If they're dying. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I. Mm -hmm. Can't answer. I mean, I don't. Oh, I, 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 I think it's because we're thinking too hard. What do we always say that our body is? A temple. A temple. Where do you think that language came from? Again, you're all Bible scholars. What happened in 70 AD? And <laughs> got destroyed. The temple gets destroyed. The rock building. The rock building, the one that, that we're talking about here in the tabernacle, it's gone. And nothing, it doesn't exist anymore. The only thing that we have to show anybody that God still exists is your bodies. Yeah, you're transferring from Jewish to Christian. Ah, ding, 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 ding. That's why we use it. All of a sudden, we realize, well, we don't realize that the culture changes the idea from sanctifying a place to you being that place <laughs> what's the language that i always say that you guys are the of what of jesus you are the of jesus body body and i and i use a specific word it starts with an i image. you are the image, image of christ on earth that's a that's a christian term so if if so here's, here's where your brains are going to go, what? Here it is. They've established that oil is important. In our own faith traditions, anointing oil has become a very important factor. Jesus uses language about offering, is that I present myself to the Lord on your behalf, type of language, which we just read. So if Jesus presents himself to it as an offering, and the temple is destroyed, you then become the temple of God in the image of Christ, who was the offering for all of humankind. So then makes sense that as Christians, we anoint that body and the moments of death, healing, uh, movement, anointing them as priests, because we also say that we are the of all believers. We are the priesthood of all believers in the Christian church. So we're saying that all of you are in some way or another priests of God. I latched on that they were anointing the priests, but they do the whole. Mm -hmm. I mean, they prepare everything. that everything. That's right. Everything is been made presentable to God. So it makes sense then that we do it this way. Today. When you um, when uh, Marientos took Maya to the front, yeah, did you anoint her with oil? I mean, did you? Uh, I don't think I did in that time. I might have. I couldn't. I couldn't remember if you did that. I don't know. It's usually personal preference at that point because it's not a part of our tradition. Okay. Uh, I will have a lot of ministers argue with me about that in the Christian church, but that's because they've uh, homogenized themselves. They don't remember where we came from. Not that I'm there. Um, 
<laughs> you, you, have, you have ministers that say, oh, look, the Episcopal, Episcopal guy did that. Why can't we? And they go ask another Christian church guy and says, why can't we do that? I don't know. Let's do it. And the next thing you know is we're all anointing people with oil. But we have no idea or connection to it like this in any way, shape, or form or theological discussion. So for us, I only do it based off of the family's request. So uh, Nolan grew up Catholic. Um, and I don't think he asked me to do it. Um, sometimes when it comes to anointing oil, in the even in, I've had people say, when I get baptized, can you anoint me with oil afterwards? Absolutely. If that helps you consecrate your body, then let's go for it. Well, we're only in Exodus, but it says not to. To what? To anoint anybody with oil. Right, yeah, Exodus said, yeah, don't do I mean, that. That's a bad idea. You're, so, you're, you're, uh, you're, you're taking on the presence of God. That's, we don't want to do that. Here, they, and that's why they're they're hardcore about it too. Don't do that. If you do this, you're gonna you're gonna be removed from your whole family. God's house is more important than anything on earth. But then Christians they, mess it up. So, but then they tell us how to mix everything. That's right. But don't do it. Don't do it. Here's <laughs> how you do it. Only the right portion. You can only make the right portion. Were you able to bring any oil back with you? I know you brought <laughs> water back. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I actually have some. Um, I have my uh, I have my own little sacristy. We have the one in the back where we set up the where we used to set up communion and the cups and stuff. And then I have stuff that over the years that I've accumulated as sacred things, but you know, not necessarily sacred device. So I obviously have my fancy bottle of <laughs> olive oil. Yeah, it's all on camera. It's super easy. You can go by the grocery store because it doesn't do anything fancy. For those of you that are online, so this is 2019 ashes from Palm Sunday. This is 2020 ashes from Palm Sunday. So it's darker. Yeah, I actually did this one right. 2019, I think that was the year I had this steal it from the Presbyterians. So, because I didn't have the palm branches because in 2020, uh, we didn't have, you know, Palm Sunday. Then, uh, then, then I have um, water from uh, the church of the Magnificat, which we just talked about, from Mary's church where uh, the angel spoke to Mary. There's a church there. Greek Orthodox Church that there's this well and supposedly holy water. I was going to say that's been blessed. Then. This has been blessed over and over and over and over again. So I just thought it was cool, so I took it with me. Uh, and then this is water from the Jordan River. Uh, this is awful. Uh, this is what it looks like for you guys online. Uh, no, I'll just pass this around. You guys can look at it. it they, they sell it like uh, at every, every place that you go. <clears throat> and this uh, is anointing oil that I got from Galilee. I actually got this at the Dead Sea. So this is uh, the Rose of Galilee, and then this is anointing oil with jasmine. And I would pass this around, but this, these bottles that are in there, um, they, they um, sweat. Mm. And so there's all kinds of stuff on the outside, and it takes forever to get it off your fingers. Mm -hmm. So when you run out, you need to go back. 
Yeah, I'm getting, I'm getting, I'm getting low, so I'm gonna have to go back to Jerusalem to get some more water from the Jordan sure River. You can't order it online. But I was <laughs> just you can absolutely order it from online. There's a place, and this is a this is an often clear pocket that we use for uh, Seder feasts or Passover meals. The Afikoman is where you hide a piece of the Seder feast, and so. Uh, so, Did yeah. You do I, a cedar? Huh? Did you do a feast here? I don't. Cedar not not anymore. Um, well, you used to. I used to. Yeah, we did. The first year I think you were here. Yeah, we, I, I did it, and then we decided we were going to do it differently, and then and then we did it twice. We did three times okay, we before 2020. Um, for me, well, it's definitely coming back, but. Part of the problem that I've run into is, is that it's important for us as we, we talk about the specific Jewish rituals that we recognize that most of them are Jewish. And so part of what happens is, is that it becomes really easy for us to say, well, see here, this, this is exactly what Jesus meant when he's picking up these things. Well, he picks up pieces of the Seder feast on purpose that have nothing to do with the Seder itself he transforms them into something else in the dialogue so i always got i got it, it was i had an academic uh brain freeze um because the seder feast itself is 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 a jewish ritual so i mean i could i i we've talked about setting it up again and which would mean that i would read from the haggadah in hebrew and and we would just have a pure seder feast and talk about how cool it is that this is what Jesus would have been doing with the disciples. But the Seder feast is not the culmination of him becoming the Messiah. It's, it's what we turned it into. Does that make sense? It's just, it's a part of ritual. It's like, it's like, for me, it's like the, it's the, um, um, the Lord's prayer. We say it every Sunday. It's a part of who we are. Uh, someone 10 years from now could say, look at that. That's their creed. Well, no, 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 we don't believe in creeds. No, no, that's not us at all. So that's that's what I'm saying. It's a little, I had an academic brain freeze, folks. That's that's the problem. It's very Jewish. Yeah, very. I mean, it explains why they're, what the, well, it's done very well, but it explains what the Passover is. Yeah. I mean, yeah. why they eat horseradish. And, yeah. So I tried to do that. Like when we did it, the, Two or three years ago, that was the whole was this here's, here's why we use these things. This is what we do. This is why they say this year takes about an hour and a half. Freaks people out that were there that long. But nobody else notices the time except for me. So got hyssop. I have hyssop. Yeah. We we also did the hand washing, the feet washing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, yeah. Too, too. that's yeah. Which, yeah. precedence. Yeah, but we didn't do the time. We didn't do the prayer lap. At that time, either we washed the hand, the feet and hands the same time. That's we right. did the prayer lap. That's people, right. People freak out about that though, because yeah. yeah. I volunteered to do that every time, and they yeah, it's less and less and less. People don't want their feet washed. Well, that's true. No offense, Robert. I love you, but I don't want you touching my feet. So well, a lot of people are very. <clears throat> but speaking of which. This is why Jesus washes his disciples' feet. This is, you see, this is that connection. Does that mean that he's 
making the disciples priests? No, it's part of the moment. He's taking on the role of the high priest, just like I preached like seven weeks ago. He's taking on these roles in such a way that presents it to everyone. Where does he get that? Ding, ding, ding. Well, he is kind of making the disciples priests. Or even the stewards. Yeah. Right? Because he's talking about his sons. They can't do this without being um, washed. And the disciples are commissioned to go out to the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, we all are, so. So, again, I, for those on the recording, I just want to make sure I'm very careful of how I say this in the sense that there's a lot of similarities to some of the, the things that Jesus did, but this is where he learned it from. This is this is how he got these ideas. These are These are the things that make it special to him but it's also special to this group of people in a totally different mindset. This is establishing why the priests do what they do in the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. This is why the priests do the stuff that they do all the way through the Hebrew Bible. Jesus changes that language, does different stuff, but he learns it from his tradition. And with that, I'm going to stop the recording.